It is good to be back here, church. Are you alive? That's good. Excellent. Excellent. I don't know if you've ever found yourself uh, reading a book or watching a movie where the scene sort of plonks you right in the middle of some action. Uh, Maybe it's the first page of the book, maybe it's the first scene of the movie, and it plonks you in the middle of a battle, or in the middle of a race, or in the middle of a death scene or something, and it's fast-paced, and you're rushed, and you're thinking, what's happening here? And and, uh, you you sort of have to wait for the film, the movie, or the book to rewind, and to give you some background on the action that you've just found yourself in. Apparently... Not that I knew this before last week. Apparently, this is called a this is a literary device called a medias res. Did you know that? There you go. Every day is a school day. A medias res, which means in the middle of things, and it, it's it's a kind of a literary device designed to literally plonk you in the middle of things. Now that is all fine if the writer or the narrator takes you back and explains. But if they don't, you're left frustrated, you're left confused, and you might even put the book away or turn off the movie before it's finished. Now, I think we can often do that with our Bibles. We open the Bible at a chapter or at a story, particularly if we don't know the story very well, and and we launch into it, And we're like, what's going on here? I I, I don't get this. This is confusing. This is frustrating. I don't know the background. I don't know what's happened. I don't know the characters. And so we put it away. And that's not, I'm not being critical at all of the preachers that have gone before in this series. Of course I'm not. In fact, Andy reminded us of this a couple of weeks ago. Um, But I don't want us to do that with this critical passage that we're going to look at in Isaiah. Uh, So just to warn you, some of you are going to be frustrated by the end of this because you're like, Matt, you've done a lot of teaching, but you haven't given me much application. There will be application, but it's going to come towards the end. But hopefully, some of you will go, ah... It makes the rest a lot clearer. The stuff, even the stuff that's gone before and the stuff still to come in the series. So just to take us back a bit, especially if you haven't been here, in week one of the series, Andy spoke to us from chapter six, that amazing commissioning chapter where Isaiah meets a holy God in the throne room. And he reminded us that God is still on the throne. And then Stu led us uh, from chapter 9, the amazing prophecy, really. And then we had week 3, if you remember the word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, there was hope and there was forgiveness and there was mercy. And then week 4, Godfrey took us into chapter 35, the joy of the redeemed, that heartfelt desire of us all wanting to go home. And then week five, Andy led us from chapter 40, which comes at the beginning of a different section, which I'll explain in the moment, which was comfort for the people in exile. And then you had a sort of a a week off, that's the wrong word, but a week off, looking at at, at harvest. Uh, and, And now we're at this week. And it sits as part of the whole of the book of Isaiah. We have to remember that. Don't just come at little chunks. 
Now, the book of Isaiah is written seven or eight hundred years before Jesus. So it's nearly 3,000 years from us. And remember, I'm going to be very careful as I say this, remember, the Bible is not written primarily to us. It's written for us. But it's not written to us. There was, a, there was a generation, there was a people, there was a nation, there was a person even for some of the books who it was primarily written to, uh, but it's written for us. But we're sort of a few steps removed. And so the book of Isaiah sits within this chunk of the Bible called the, the major prophets, as opposed to the minor prophets, not that one's more important than another. That's not what it means. It just means the major prophets were the sort of the bigger books. The minor prophets are the smaller books. So there were lots of contemporary prophets around Isaiah at the same time. Amos, Hosea, Micah. These are all sort of contemporaries roughly around the same sort of time. Time. For instance, Amos was speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, while Isaiah speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you're into history, the book of Isaiah is actually one of the best attested Old Testament books of history. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were discovered in, in 1946 by a Bedouin shepherd boy. And in those scrolls, they found a complete book of Isaiah. Uh, and it was predated our previous copy by about a thousand years. It's amazing. And to all intents and purposes, it's exactly the same story. It's a really well-constructed book, the book of Isaiah. And obviously, when the book of Isaiah was, was written, they didn't have chapters and they didn't have verses. And they didn't have numbers in it. We've added those a lot later. But you can divide the book up into chunks. And all that you've done has sort of been the first chunk of Isaiah. Um, and the second chunk from chapters 40, which you just went into, chapter 40 to chapters 46, are in this second chunk. And, and the reason I talk about that is the second chunk is, is written in a very different style. It's written more in song, in oracle, in discourse, rather than historic sort of prose that the first chunk was written in. It's a very different style. You're almost, whoa, what's happened here? When you move from chapter 39 to chapter 40, you're like, oh. In fact, it's so different, some people think it's a different author. Because it's written in such a different style. I don't think it is a different author. I just think he's writing in a different way, <laughs> and that's fine, uh, but, but it, it, it is very different as a style as you launch into this second chunk. Isaiah was a very humble man. He was born in 765 BC, we know that, and he grew up in and around the palace of King Joash, and that made him the cousin of King Uzziah, who died back in chapter 6, so he, he knew palace life. He grew up in palace life. He grew up sort of negotiating and talking and meeting kings and prophets and other important people. And some people even call him the evangelist of the Old Testament because he was so sort of, he, he spoke about God all the time. 
And that first chapter that you looked at, chapter 6, this uh, opening in the throne room, is something that Isaiah would have been very familiar with. And it ended with that scene, do you remember, uh, where a, a live coal is placed on his lips. This powerful image of cleansing of sin. But what a picture for somebody who's going to be a prophet. He's going to speak God's words and his lips are cleansed. And we, we always think of that passage solely as a vision. But what if it actually happened? I mean, uh, I'm not arguing that it did, but, but, but what if it did? You know, for the rest of his life, Isaiah is preaching with scarred lips with lips that have been forever I am changed, as we often sing. And he's preaching to a nation that have turned their ears off. They've turned deaf to God. Instead of serving him with humility and with offering love, they just offer meaningless sacrifice. Oh, we don't care. Let's just get it over and done with. Let's just get church out the way. Let's get it done. Let's offer the sacrifice and move on with our day. But Isaiah had this miraculous gift, I think, of being able to see the here and now, as well as being able to see what is to come. That's what made him a prophet. And um, it's worth really sort of remembering that as we delve into chapter 42. And in fact, the chapters to come that you're going to look at with other speakers. Because that ability to see the here and now and the future is what makes the prophecy so revealing. Because um, prophecies speak to a specific time and place and purpose and people, yet also to something further ahead. It's like, I don't know if you did this on your sabbatical. Did you, ever, did you go for a mountain hike? I don't know if you did this. But if you do, imagine it. Uh, I don't do many of them, as you can tell. But imagine a mountain hike. And you, you sort of, you, you start the hike and you've got this path and you can see the summit ahead of you. And that's about all you can see. You know, and you, maybe your feet, are, maybe you're looking at the ground, but you look up and you see the summit and you, you get to the summit. What's the problem when you get to the summit? Not that you have to come down again, no. The problem when you get to the summit is you look out and there's another one. (laughs) And there's another summit to come. You know, another downhill valley and then up to the next summit. And then when you get to that summit, you're down. and, And it's that kind of picture with biblical prophecy. It's like... It's like, yes, I can, I can see the summit. I can see what God's saying. It's here, it's now. And, but when you get to that summit, it's speaking to the next and to the next and to the next. To give you kind of an example, you might, you might well know of the, of the picture in Revelation of the great prostitute Babylon. And of course, when John was writing that, of course, that was the Roman Empire. That was the first summit. But of course, there is one even greater or worse to come. When he's, when he's speaking about a great persecution, it was happening right there and then. I mean, they, that was the summit they were on. 
But there was another, there's another greater persecution to come. And, and that's what Isaiah has sort of launched into in this second chunk. This multi-fulfillment of prophecy. Of, yes, it applies for me here and now, Isaiah's saying, and to you. He's pointing to the nation. It's applying to you here and now. But somehow it also applies to us here and in a time to come. All biblical prophecy has a now but not yet moment to it. And all the biblical prophets point to a God who is speaking to you now, but also in the not yet. And these were real men and women preaching, prophesying. They weren't superhuman. They weren't even super spiritual, some of them. They were simple shepherds, as Amos was. But just declaring the word of the Lord now to my people, my friends, my nation, but with a miraculous, there's something more to come. You see, prophets are not fortune tellers, they're not astrologers, they're not even foretellers, they're simply people who tell God's word to God's people. And it's God who does the future work with that. And that's really important as we delve into Isaiah 42. Because Isaiah 42 is written in a specific way. Oh, well done. Thank you. They're brilliant at the back there, aren't they? Give them a round of applause. Thank you. We often forget the people at the back doing that, so thank you for that. Um, because Isaiah 42 is written in this way. In fact, in your Bibles, if you're following in your Bibles, it may be sort of indented slightly to show that it's written as a poem or as a song. It's still truth, <laughs> powerful truth, but expressed in a different way. And this is one of four specific songs in Isaiah called the Servant Songs. I think that's coming up there. Oh, well, well, it does that. Called the Servant Songs. Isaiah 42. Verses 1 to 4, Isaiah 49, 1 to 6, Isaiah 50, 4 to 9, and then Isaiah 52, 13 to 53. And all of these songs are clearly prophecy, but written in the form of a song. And they're written about a mysterious figure who will come called the suffering servant or the servant of the Lord. I'm not going to speak on those passages, they're to come, but do take note of them. Um, because uh, they're important, they're these four songs about this future person. And they include phrases that are probably quite familiar to us if we're used to being in church, especially around Christmas time <laughs> or Easter. He was despised or rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. In giving up his life, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Those are all phrases from the servant songs. Now, to us, sitting in 2023, of course, they paint a picture of, well done, bonus point, church. They paint a picture of Jesus, 
If anyone ever asks a question in church, the answer is always Jesus. You can never be wrong. That is it. But they paint a picture of Jesus, right? But that's because we live now. To them, <laughs> wow, this was a mysterious figure. And in fact, even if you went back to New Testament times, right, the disciples around Jesus, I mean, if, if you said, what's Jesus, what, what, who is he and what's he come to do? Most of those disciples would have automatically gone back to the seven songs, the book of Isaiah. It's no coincidence that Jesus' first public reading in the temple was from the book of Isaiah, chapter 4. And the title of the servant is one that Jesus claimed upon himself time and time again. Now, this multi-fulfillment of prophecy thing, you see, initially, Isaiah identifies the suffering servant as the nation of Israel. It was Israel who serves as God's witness. It was Israel who was light to the Gentiles. But <laughs> Israel couldn't fully complete the mission. It's like they got the first summit, but the next summit is even higher. Israel was given the task, but, but I don't want to say failed, but they just didn't quite complete it. Israel became deaf and blind, and Israel became in need of God's forgiveness. Israel failed again and again. So there needed to be a multi-fulfillment, something, someone extra to come. God's servant, the Messiah. Now, in, his, in Isaiah's time, they'd never heard of the name of Jesus. But they had a hope, a future. And I've already mentioned this word, Messiah. I, I actually spoke quite a lot about this last year when we did the series on Jesus the Saviour. But just as a reminder, Israel, Israel as a nation was waiting for a liberator, a person, a saviour, an anointed one to come, to rescue them. <laughs> every time, every time they got into trouble... <laughs> You know, from being Hebrew slaves, we need a rescuer, a Messiah. And along come Moses, first fulfillment. <laughs> then, well, you know, even when they became slaves again in exile, we're waiting, we're waiting for a Messiah, a rescuer. You know, this was when much of Isaiah was written, when they're, they're in captivity in Babylon. We need another one. <laughs> And this legend, this dream, this hope arose. Went forward 700 years or so into the New Testament. It's a whispered dream, again, of a captive people. They're captive, they're under Roman occupation. And the whispered dream is, hold on, hang on. He hasn't forgotten us. He will send a Messiah, a rescuer. One to overthrow and to set us free. This Messiah narrative sits at the very heart of the Jewish nation. It was the bedtime stories you told your children. It's no wonder 
when Peter in the New Testament went, you're the Messiah, that Jesus said, shh, don't tell anyone, because all that they thought it meant to be Messiah would be loaded onto the phrase and loaded onto Jesus. It's like being told stories of King Arthur from birth and then finding a stone with a sword in it. <laughs> and, and Jesus, he, Jesus didn't distance himself from being the Messiah, but he needed to change their understanding of what Messiah was. The Messiah was going to be a suffering servant rather than a warrior king. And perhaps our world sees rescue as another warrior king, a better prime minister who's going to come and sort it all out. Maybe what we should be hoping for is a suffering servant. Someone different from how the world solves the problems. Because Isaiah and Israel, sorry, Israel, wanted a, a warrior king to come and sort it all out. And here at the beginning of, of Isaiah 42, we're coming to it. <laughs> the first of these servant songs, we see this picture of what this servant is going to be like. A servant who will change everything. At the very end of chapter 41, we read this. When I look, there's no one. <laughs> there's no counsellor. <laughs> Behold, everyone is false. The works are worthless. The molten images are wind and emptiness. It's like God's assessment through Isaiah of the best that the nations could offer is wind and emptiness. You put your hope in idols and they've been found empty. Israel sinned. And most of Isaiah from chapter 1 to chapter 39 delivers bad news. But God's solution is a servant who is coming. And at the very beginning of chapter 42, he says this. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. <laughs> Behold my servant, he's saying. And just as we begin to move towards the end, this is where the application, I think, comes for us a little bit. You see, there are four things we can learn from this first description, this first song about the suffering servant. And the first thing is that the suffering servant is anointed by God. It says, he is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. The, the chosen one to come, who we know as Jesus, was chosen and marked and anointed by God. Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3 shows God's direct anointing on Jesus. Psalm 27, a royal psalm, the suffering servant is royal. This anointing is really important. Back in the Old Testament, anointing was an actual physical act. You literally had a ceremony and the priest would pour oil on the person's head and anoint them, mark them out. 
announcing or sending them for a specific task. This is God's hand anointing the suffering servant, setting them out and protecting them. It actually came from shepherds, which I love. <laughs> you know, that the lowest of the low. The mark of anointing. They used to pour oil over the sheep to get rid of the ticks and the lice and the insects. It was sort of a mark of protection. I love the fact that from the lowest of the low, we mark out the king of kings by anointing them. And it's quite a powerful act. It showed the people who witnessed it that this person was being given a responsibility and a role. A commissioning service back in Isaiah 6. It shows the seriousness of the role as well, right? You know, this is with kings and priests' authority. And it asks for God's blessing. And in a prophetic sense, the future servant of the Lord, Jesus, is marked out with serious responsibility. With God's authority, covered by his blessing and protection. And what's his role? To be a suffering and that anointed one it then goes on to explain what this suffering servant is going to look like the suffering servant is going to be compassionate it says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets a bruised reed he will not break a smouldering wick he will not snuff out those things we think are useless, oh, broken reed, but it's in a way, get rid of it. Smouldering wick, oh, just snuff it. Jesus never did that. He never treated people like that. I could give story after story from the New Testament, couldn't I? Every interaction Jesus had with people was compassionate. The outcast, the disenfranchised, the ones who walk on by, those that need our help. Jesus didn't shout. He didn't judge. He didn't raise his voice. He dealt with them with compassion. But it's worth remembering that the word compassion is a very powerful word. In the Greek, it actually means to come from your bowels, from your guts. It's a gripping sense of pain. To have compassion for someone means you suffer along with them. We don't just give food and forget, not that you're doing that, but we suffer along with them. And the suffering servant, acting with compassion, is going to suffer along with us. Because the suffering servant is also just. Oh, you're perfect. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Justice is a really important concept for Christians. The Bible describes God as a just ruler who acts to ensure all wrongs are righted and that justice prevails. As a Western church... We seem obsessed with God being loving. And of course, God is loving. The Bible says God is love. But it also says God is just. 
And you cannot have true and complete love without a sense of justice. God is not just loving, full stop. His love is made complete because of his complete justice. He is love and he is just. And the two intermingle, two sides of the same coin, as does all theology, actually. And if you're in a place right now where you feel like evil is winning, you don't just want to know that God is loving. (laughs) You want to know that he's going to sort it out. You want to know that God is just and that justice will prevail. And I'm here today to tell you it will through the suffering servant. God's loving nature means nothing without justice. His forgiveness means nothing without justice. As parents, you know that, right? (laughs) You try raising a child by being just loving and forgiving. (laughs) Every time they do something wrong, oh, it doesn't matter. Love you anyway. (laughs) What sort of child would you raise? (laughs) Self-entitled, selfish monsters. (laughs) I I hazard a guess. (laughs) You see, the idea of consequences, the idea of punishment... The idea of justice is just as, Im- just as important in the issue of love and forgiveness. God's justified love meant punishment on a cross. He couldn't just say, oh, it doesn't matter, because it does. And one day, in a final prophetic sense, the last hill, the last mountain, the suffering servant will one day return. But this time he won't return as a servant. He'll return as king of kings and lord of lords, wearing not a crown of thorns, as a suffering servant would, but a crown of many crowns. And he will be riding a white horse, And he will judge and he will bring justice with the full army of heaven behind him. And justice will then be complete and it will be fair and it will be true. Now, I'm really glad that it doesn't end there, (laughs) even though that's a fantastic uh, image. Because it also says one more thing. The suffering servant will hold us fast. It says, I've called you in righteousness, I've taken you by the hand, and I've kept you. What an image to close the suffering servant song, or the first suffering servant song. The suffering servant takes us by the hand. The hand in which the nails were placed, (laughs) he holds us fast. When pain comes, when the hurt seems too much to bear, when your relationship breaks down, when the marriage that you fought for for so long comes to an end, when the stillborn baby arrives, when your children leave home and you feel lost and aimless, when disability or old age 
makes your bones ache every day. When you feel far away from him because of your sin or because of the choices you've made. He takes you by the hand and he keeps you. He holds us fast, covered in his righteousness. Not yours. (laughs) Not because of what you've done. (laughs) It's his glory. It's his holiness. It's his good that covers us. As I close, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, he who spreads forth the earth and that which comes from it, shows us that he is powerful enough. He who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, means he's actively involved in your and my life now. When he calls us in righteousness, he holds us by the hand. And there is comfort that comes from that. And I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. A covenant. The Lord has promised this will be so. And he will hold us fast. Isaiah 42 takes us to the here and now but also to the future. A future not yet realised, but we can have faith that it will happen because of who the suffering servant is. Amen.